Welcome to The Upshot. I'm Leah Rose. Today I'm talking to Robin Rinaldi, who wrote Love in the Time of Plethora for the Love and Sex issue of San Francisco Magazine. I saw motherhood as one route to this level of female experience that I longed for. And then when the door to motherhood suddenly slammed, I kind of became almost desperate to access this femaleness in other ways. And to me, that meant seeking out lovers. Robin is the former executive editor of 7x7 and the author of the new memoir, The Wild Oats Project. Her essay from San Francisco Magazine's Love and Sex issue recounts her hedonistic days in San Francisco that included a three-month stay at an orgasmic commune, as well as her fulfilling other fantasies that eventually led to the end of her marriage. Her essay, Love in the Time of Plethora, explores why people fall so hard and get so weird in San Francisco. Here's my conversation with Robin. So in your essay, Love in the Time of Plethora, you reveal a lot of really personal details about your love life in San Francisco. And I'm curious, was it hard to write something that was so intimate? Yes, in a way it was. Uh, But since I had just finished writing a 300-page memoir about my love life in in San Francisco, (laughs) writing a 1,500-word essay seemed a little easier after that to tell you the truth. So how did you figure out which parts of everything that you had already explored in your memoir to kind of condense for this essay? Well, John Steinberg and I, the editor of San Francisco Magazine, were talking about my book on the phone because the February love and sex issue was coming up. And we were wondering if we could take a piece of the book or an excerpt or something like that and use it for that issue. And the conversation uh, didn't really yield much. We batted a lot of ideas around and didn't really come up with anything. And then that very night, I went out to see some friends. I was staying in my hometown in Pennsylvania at the time. And I went out to see an old friend of mine and her husband, who had just gotten back from a trip to celebrate their 30-year anniversary. And as we were sitting there in the bar catching up and drinking beer, I was just struck by the two separate paths our lives had taken, me and this close friend of mine. And it it really struck me that that was what I wanted to write about. So it's, it's not really about exactly what was covered in my book, but it's, it's related. And the very next morning, I woke up and wrote the whole thing and sent it to John. And then we just kind of worked on it from there. Was there anything about that experience at that dive bar in your hometown um, with a really close friend who's been married for 30 years, who's had their ups and downs, um, but is still seems very happily married? Was there something about that experience that you sort of longed for or, or that you were a little bit jealous about? Well, sure. Yeah. I don't know if jealous is the right word. She and I are such close friends, um, but maybe longed for. And and, and also at the same time was very happy for her about. I, I think that 
what she and her husband have now at the age of 50, which is two children and a dog and two grandchildren and a home and plans for retirement, are is on some level this kind of American dream that a lot of us have, and certainly a part of me has it, even though I really haven't lived my life to set it up that way. But there, it's still kind of a, it's what the movies are about, and it's what a lot of advertisements are about. And right. it's just this common collective dream that a lot of us have. And, and for good reason. There's, there's a lot of beauty in it, and there's a lot of good stuff there. And um, more so, though, than longing for it at that exact point myself, I, I felt this sense of relief and happiness for her because when she did get married at the age of 19, I was afraid. You know, I, I, I mean, I thought it was early to get married. She had to drop out of college. She was about to have a baby. And I thought the odds were stacked against her at that point. And I was happy kind of because it kind of hit me that night that they beat the odds and they they really are happy. <laughs> so you were married when you moved to San Francisco in your late 30s. And you yes. write in your essay that that's when things got weird. Uh, what exactly happened? And how do you think San Francisco influenced what ended up happening with your own personal experience? Well, uh, that's a great question. And um, that's the exact question John and I were trying to answer when we were talking about this story. So I, I definitely think San Francisco influenced me, but like I said, more as a backdrop. So just a little background. I mean, a lot was going on in my life then. When I moved to San Francisco, uh, I was 39, and a lot was going on in my marriage. Um, I was in my late 30s, so I was about to hit middle age. I was starting to feel a lot more comfortable and confident about my own sexuality. I was also asking my husband to have a baby at that point. My maternal urge was kind of late to kick in. It didn't even happen until my late 30s. So once it did, it felt kind of urgent. And and he didn't want to have a child. So there was a lot of um, urgency and conflict brewing under the surface. So then we get to San Francisco, and... Uh, I saw a lot of people around us living unconventionally. They weren't really living by traditional rules necessarily. Some people were having open relationships. Uh, I had other friends who were having babies by themselves, which I didn't want to do, by the way. I did not feel equipped to raise a baby alone. But still, I thought that was a really brave and unconventional move to see women doing that. And so there's a lot going on, and then here I am in this city where the conventions and the rules that we often live by are not as stringent. I I saw people making some of their own rules, and it was kind of like the perfect storm. I started, you know, feeling like I could make my own rules too. So did you and your husband at that point decide together to have an open relationship, or was it more something that you wanted and you talked to him about and then you started doing Yes, it was definitely my idea. Uh, it And he did eventually agree to it and go along with it. But to be honest, I'm not sure he felt he had much of a choice. So what happened was our baby talks were going nowhere. And as you can imagine, they were very wrenching and painful for both of us uh, because we loved each other very much. And this is a huge issue in a marriage. So uh, it's a long story, but long story short, it came to a head And he decided he wanted to get a vasectomy, and he wanted to close the issue once and for all. He was tired of talking about it. 
And at that point, it was um, kind of like this dam burst inside of me. Wow. I, I had this feeling of do or die. I was in the prime of my life. I had this longing to experience, like, what does it mean to be a woman? And I felt time running out. I, I saw motherhood as one route to this level of female experience that I longed for. And then when the door to motherhood suddenly slammed, I kind of became almost desperate to access this femaleness in other ways, if that makes sense. And to me, that meant seeking out lovers. And I think after he said no to a baby, he didn't feel he could say no to an open marriage. So as clumsy and messy as that all sounds, that's how it started. And we were by no means like the serious philosophical polyamorous that have, you know, philosophical rejection, uh, philosophical problems with monogamy. Uh, you've done a story on that community. We were not that. That is not our situation. It was a totally impulsive and less conscious move on my part that he eventually went along with. So were you hoping in any way or did you have any conversations with any of the people that you met once you decided to have an open relationship? Did you talk about getting pregnant with anybody else? Oh, no. No, I didn't. Um, In fact, one of the rules my husband and I had set up, we had just a couple basic rules, uh, and one of them was that we'd have safe sex, So, um, which really meant condoms. So, no, I wasn't – I did not have that conversation with anyone, although, to be totally honest – I slipped up with that a few times, and later on, I wondered if maybe on some semi-conscious level, that was exactly what I was trying to do. Hmm. So what was it like What was it like the first time, I'm curious, that you slept with someone who wasn't your husband? Well, um, I had expected that maybe it would be really scary or sad. Um, because we had been monogamous and together so long. And I have to say I was kind of pleasantly surprised at how, I guess, easy it was. So how did, maybe it, because, how did, how did it happen? Were you drunk? Was it easy to meet someone <laughs> to sleep with? How did, how did it all go down? Um, okay, well, there was the plan and then there was the way it actually went down. So the plan was I took out an ad on Nerve.com. I actually took out an ad on Craigslist and it got taken down. It got flagged. Why? What did it say? (laughs) This is a whole other little digression, but it said um, that I was looking for lovers to help me explore my sexuality, my age, the age I wanted them to be, and that I was in an open marriage, that I wanted to meet in public first, and that we could be limited to three dates because I couldn't get seriously involved. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Wow. The exact text of the ad is in the bo- in my book. Okay. And, so you had very uh, clear parameters sketched out very for this clear. encounter. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that we'd be having safe sex, I think, was in there, I'm sure. But um, And it got taken down on Craigslist immediately because uh, it, I, eventually I learned it was because the users didn't like the tone of the ad and because it didn't have my weight or a picture of me in it. And men flag really? ads on Craigslist like that. Yeah, oh, it, thought, it was a whole learning gonna, experience. 
I thought you were going to say it got taken down because you were basically soliciting sex. Well, no. Casual encounters on Craigslist, that's all it is, is soliciting sex. Right. Okay. So that was how I actually started finding lovers. And no, it wasn't difficult. So at that point, is that when you started living at the Orgasmic Meditation Commune in San Francisco? Mm. Uh, I ended up spending about three months of the year that we had the open marriage living at One Taste, which is the orgasmic meditation community. And and it, to be clear, it was there was a communal living situation with One Taste back then, but this is seven years ago now, and I don't believe they have that anymore. But uh, at that time, I started living there really not so much to go practice orgasmic meditation, which is their focus, but to to be in a place where people were exploring and um, open to sexual exploration that wasn't really like a bar and, you know, meeting strangers, a place where people were kind of living by daylight and being friends. And it just felt kind of safer and more contained to me. So how did the commune work and what was a, a typical day like there? Well, the commune was very unlike what I expected. Uh, Before I went there and I had just kind of heard about it and read about it, I kind of expected, I don't know, like a puppy pile of hippies or something. And uh, they were, it was much different than that. They were clean cut and professional and extremely tech savvy. And there was no drinking or drugs, and uh, many people were vegetarians. Everyone was either doing yoga or working out. So it kind of was like a, a healthy place, almost like a spa or something. I mean, it even <laughs> looked like a yoga studio. And um, they had workshops and stuff on the weekend. Some of them were orgasmic meditation workshops, and a lot of them were just like communication workshops and relationships. And and they were a lot of fun. Uh, honestly, they were. It was great fun. And the uh, orgasmic meditation itself was a fifteen minute practice in which uh, the women would basically you they they did it in a group setting a couple times a day. But then they also people also scheduled private. They call them OMS O M orgasmic meditation. And so during this fifteen minute. Ohm, the woman lays down and the man strokes her clitoris for 15 minutes without any goal whatsoever. And then when the 15 minutes is over, they sit up and kind of exchange what they experienced and talk about the sensations they had. And there is no real goal other than to explore the sensations and kind of stay grounded in your body. So there's no goal even to orgasm? No, in, not at all. In fact, if there is any point to the whole thing, it's that you not worry about that. Uh, they, at least when I was there, I'm not sure exactly how it is now because it's an, organi- an organization that changes fairly quickly, but they do not define orgasm the, the way the mainstream defines it as like a climax that happens for 10 seconds and then is over with. They define orgasm as kind of a more free-flowing, relaxed state of pleasure. And uh, so whether or not a woman would climax within that 15 minutes or it did not matter. Some did. Many didn't. And it just wasn't 
it wasn't the point or the goal of it. And I can tell you it's very freeing to, to, um, to experience it that way with, you know, because most of the time if, if a woman is having sex with a man and he's touching her, there's some internal, you know, even underlying pressure to kind of make it work, you know, and it, it's just, and that's great, you know, but it's, it's nice to have a, a 15 minute time when you don't have to make anything work and you can just register what's happening. You wrote something really interesting in your essay that that I really connected to. You said that your time spent living in San Francisco, it obviously it affected your experience with sex, with love, but those those lessons came directly from experience instead of talking to a therapist or maybe to a friend. So I'm curious what lessons did you have in mind when when you wrote that? Well, I think the main lesson I was really stuck on for a long time, many years of my life actually, and talked to therapists about and talked to friends about was uh, what what should I prioritize in my life? Should I prioritize passion or should I prioritize security? I had a marriage that was very secure. It had started out passionate, but, you know, after 20 years was less passionate, but still very good and very loving. And I love security. I really did and actually still do. And and I had this other part of me that felt unlived and unexpressed and was trying to express itself in different ways, sex being one of them. And for lack of a better word, we'll call that, you know, the passionate part. And I really felt like they were often at odds. And I I felt at some point I was going to have to, uh, I wouldn't say choose one or the other, like I'm never going to have a, the other one again, but prioritize one or the other. And and I ended, a lot of people gave me their advice, and I read a lot of books, and I talked to a lot of people, and in the end, I chose passion. You know, even if passion is fleeting, and I think it is, that uh, sometimes 10 minutes or 10 days or one year of passion uh, is worth it because, you know, we're only living in the present anyway. And I think we all have a longing to live with passion. And uh, we all kind of have to decide what we're willing to pay for it and, you know, how we're willing to go about getting it. And that's kind of what I was referring to when I was saying that uh, I had to live that by experience and and not sit around, you know, waiting for other people to tell me how to do it. You write that you tend to mistrust the correlations that people make between the city they live and the sex they have because it doesn't take into account two of the most important factors that govern our love life, which is personal responsibility and just dumb luck. So can you explain how those two factors are at odds with each other? Well, <laughs> I mean, I kind of wrote that line to be a little funny, but I also think it's really true. For me, at least, uh, that's the way I see it. I, I feel like 
we're always trying to control how our love life goes. You know, if you follow these 10 rules, you'll be married in a year. And if you never do these five things, you know, then you you won't have an abusive relationship. And, you know, if you haven't met the right person by this age, then do this. And it's great to work on your self and your relationships and to try to be as communicative as you can and as open as you can to love and all of that. It's great to go actively looking for love and and all of that. But I mean, I feel like it's complete denial to just omit the fact that love is also a mystery and that there's luck involved. Sometimes I feel like we don't want to admit that, you know, because it kind of puts us at the mercy of fate. But you know, there, I feel there's luck involved. And so if I feel like both of those, I don't think they're at odds. I think it's true that if you want a good relationship, you have to work on it and work at finding it and keeping it and, and all of that. And also, there's luck involved. Right. And you've got to also cross your fingers and hope for the best. Um, very true. I love advice columnists. So and columns, I read them all the time. And so I'm just always really curious about that. Um, okay, so how did your own perspective on your love life in San Francisco change after writing your essay? Well, I think it became clearer in my mind, a little clearer anyway, after writing that essay. It had always kind of lingered in the back of my mind how much of a role did San Francisco play. Uh, and I I think writing all of that down kind of made it clear to me that it, it played a part, but it certainly didn't, you know, make me do what I did. Uh, I think there are a couple of places that that open marriage and and that whole scenario could have played out uh, other cities. And I think San Francisco is one of them. Um, I felt like it was almost a character in, in, in that time in my life, one character, but not the main character. You know, I, I was the main character and the other people in the story were the main characters. So I think it kind of crystallized that idea for me that I was the one taking the action and San Francisco was the backdrop. Well, thank you, Robin, so much for talking with us today. I can't wait to read your book. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, Leah. The Upshot was produced by Justin Richmond at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Thank you to John Steinberg and San Francisco Magazine for sponsoring today's episode. And thank you again to Robin Rinaldi. To check out past episodes of The Upshot, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And visit us at theupshotpod.com. And tweet us at theupshotpod. Until next time, I'm Leah Rose with The Upshot.